Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 10 today. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10. We've sung that song, Jesus Messiah, a bunch of times. And I love it. But it just struck me today as we were singing that Jesus Messiah, name above all names. Blessed Redeemer, Emmanuel. I mean, what a glorious, beautiful truth that is that we celebrate and we rejoice in every time we come together to worship. And in reality, that's what the writer of Hebrews is showing us, that Jesus Messiah is a name above all names. He's better than the angels. He is the very Son of God. He is the firstborn of all creation. I mean, he is who he is, and he is above everything. And that's what he wants us to see. And all through this book, I mean, every week we will look at a passage that will will tell us something new and something more glorious, perhaps, even than the last week, about who Jesus is and what he's done and what effect that ought to have on our lives, what effect that will have on our lives if we are in Christ. It's not just a matter of, well, you know, come on and, and accept Jesus, choose Jesus, and then go do your own thing. That's what he's going to make clear this morning. I mean, I, this is so eminently clear in this passage that Jesus Christ, in all that he has done, makes a difference in the way we live and, and sort of shatters all this stuff about, you know, well, uh, I'm a believer, but I, I don't really live like a believer, and, and that's okay. It's the I'm, that, uh, it's the I'm okay, you okay, you're okay vision of Christianity, which is no vision of Christianity at all. And, and so the writer wants us to understand some great things about Jesus, two things in particular. He's our pioneer, and he's our elder brother, and those are great. But he also wants us to see the effect that that will have on our life change it will make in us and by us every single day that we live in Christ on the face of this earth. It's an amazing thing that he's going to say in these very, very few verses, but it's important that we understand it. Hear the word of God as I read it, starting verse 10. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Just stop there for a minute talking about his sufferings there, but I I was amazed. One of my friends posted his sermon title today uh, online, and I I just happened to see it before I came in here, and he's preaching this morning out of 1 Peter, and and similar to the passages that Jeff read earlier out of there, but the title of his sermon is, God has a wonderful plan for suffering in your life. And I thought, wow, he suffered and we suffer, and there's purpose in both. Well, that's just a little aside. Verse 11, for both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, this is quoting 
the scripture as though it were Jesus saying it, and it is Jesus saying it. I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Quoting from Psalm 22 and Isaiah chapter 8, the, the, the writer here talks about the gloriousness of what Christ has done as he puts it earlier in his own statement for quoting scripture in bringing many sons to glory. There are two things that the writer says about Jesus here that's sort of a further unfolding of what he has said earlier as far as him being greater than the angels. A little clear understanding. says two things. says he is our pioneer, or the word in the translation here, he is the author of their salvation. The word author there can be translated leader or, or pioneer or author or, or, or beginner, uh, initiator. All of those things, that word in the Greek can be translated into those English words. And the idea that he is the author of our salvation, he is the pioneer of our salvation, gives the understanding that Christ wrote it, Christ developed it, Christ blazed the trail of salvation that we are to follow. I almost get the picture when I hear the writer say that he is the author or he is the pioneer of their salvation through his sufferings. The, the picture of someone like Lewis and Clark, the great American uh, explorers who explored North America, and you've studied about them, I hope, in your history books. If you're as old as I am, you did. I don't know what they study about today, but uh, sometimes they miss some of the good stuff. But Lewis and Clark, who blazed the trail across the... Uh, the whole country and, and, and people behind them later on followed after them. They, they took the route that they followed because they had blazed the trail. And you could go another route, you could try something else, but it usually led to death or, or great peril at your own cost. So you followed the path that was followed, that, that they blazed for us. Well, Christ has blazed the trail of salvation. He is the pioneer. He is the author. He is the perfecter. He is the one who blazed it for us, and it's that trail that we must follow if we want to get to where he is. Oh, you can try other things. You can try good works. You can try following the golden rule. You can try living the Ten Commandments. You can try all sorts of things. But those trails do not lead to life. Those trails lead to great peril and ultimately to death, the writer says. And, and other writers in the New Testament say the same thing. He has blazed a trail that leads to their salvation. It leads to our salvation. And that salvation has come through sufferings. We sang this morning about it being by the blood of Christ. We sang about how our the great price of our salvation, the great price that our trailblazer, our author paid in order that we might be saved, in order that we might follow in truth and in light. The, the price that was paid was a price of suffering. It, it wasn't an easy thing. It wasn't a, a glorious thing or a glamorous thing. It was suffering that he endured on the cross that we might have life. And it says that he was it perfected, it made perfect the author of our salvation. Now, you may look at that, and I mentioned this Wednesday night as we read this text, and uh, you asked the question, of, uh, of course, Jesus was perfect from the beginning, from the beginning. He was perfect in all sense. How did his sufferings perfect our Savior? 
why did his sufferings perfect who he was? Did it make his sinlessness even more sinless? Did it mean that he recognized something that we didn't see and so he was made more perfect? Absolutely not. What the writer is saying here is that it was completed. The word perfect there is talking about the completion of this trailblazing, the completion of the, the reason he came, the completion of his task and his mission and his ministry. It, it wasn't just to tell us neat stories. It wasn't just to do miracles on the earth, but it was to come and to die and to suffer in our place that we might live. And so it was completed through his sufferings, this concept, this idea of a trailblazer. But he's not only a trailblazer, he's an elder brother. It says in the first part of verse 10, it was fitting for him for whom are all things, and other things, everything belongs to him, and through whom are all things. He is the creator of all things. Everything's through him. Everything's for him. Everything's by him to bring many sons to glory. To bring many sons to glory. Now, Sons there is sort of a generic use that refers also to you ladies. To bring many children to glory, to bring many into the presence of Almighty God. This trailblazer, this pioneer of our salvation, is one who has brought sons, daughters, children into the presence of the Father. Now understand, he is the only rightly he is the only rightly derived son. He is the only begotten son of the Father. He is the only true, rightful son of God. He, he had a right to be called the son of God for one reason. He is the son of God. We were the sons of evil. We were the sons of rebellion. We were the children of disobedience. But he has brought now many children into the presence of God's glory because of his work as a pioneer and an author of their salvation, his work on the cross. And that's what the author here is drawing for us, a picture to understand. The picture is he blazed the trail, and then on the, that trail he brought us along. He, he led us into the presence of God. He is, our, he is the one we follow. He is the one we believe in. He is the one in whom we place our trust bringing many sons, adopted sons and daughters. You know, the, the greatest picture, I think, in all the New Testament of the Christian life is, is the uh, picture of adoption. We don't deserve to be children of God. But by His grace, and for His own glory, and by His work in us that we'll talk about in a minute that the, the, the author talks about here, He has said, I adopt you into my family. I make you a part of my family. I give you childhood rights in my family which you have no right to have. It's glorious. If you want to, the, the best dealing with this, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a little thing here. Go get J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, if you've never, if you don't have it, and read the chapter on Sons of God. It's all on adoption. And it, it clarifies it in ways that I can't do in a 20 or 30 or 40 minute sermon. You just can't, uh, you just can't do it. It's a magnificent masterpiece on understanding this concept of adoption. 
When we think about adopting children, and we've got people in our congregation that have adopted children, and that's a beautiful picture of what God has done, and it's a glorious ministry that God gives some people the, the grace to do in order to show what it's like to be part of the family of God. It really is. You take somebody that has no right to be in your family, has no claim on your inheritance, no claim on your home, no claim on you, and you say, doesn't matter. It's okay. I, I take them. I receive them. That's what God has done. That's what God has done in, in this whole concept as Jesus is leading, bringing many sons to glory. So he is our elder brother. He is our author of salvation. He is our pioneer, our leader of salvation. And he's done that through his sufferings, and he's brought us through that because he suffered in our place. He took upon himself our sin. He took upon himself that which we deserved so that we don't have to bear the wages of what we deserve. The wages of sin is death. And yet he has tasted death for those who believe. He has given life to those who believe. And life has overcome death. I mean, that's what the writer is just weaving together in last week's sermon and this week's sermon that we understand it. And then he says in verse 11, and this is, this is a key. Now, you know, verses, verses 12, and 13 and four, uh, 12 and 13 are important verses there because they're the, they're the background. They're the scripture that he quotes to show that Jesus is bringing uh, brethren to God. Jesus bringing those adopted children and all that. So he's just solidifying it by the scripture. I will put my trust in him. Behold, I and the children whom God has given me. I mean, the, the whole picture there that Jesus is leading children whom God has given to him to lead into the kingdom. It's a beautiful picture of this idea of adoption. But in verse 11, he comes to talk about this for both again Jesus both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one father some translations say all from one origin or, or all from one family uh, and, and all of those are acceptable translations of that particular verse but the idea is they're all from a common father. They all have the same father. One by, one by birthright, one by adoption. One because he is the son of God, one because he's brought other sons of God in. And, and so all those, both he who does the sanctifying, the Lord Jesus Christ, talk about that in a minute, and those who are sanctified, that's the important thing for you and me today to understand, are all from one father. And because of that, because we're family together, because he's our elder brother, he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Jesus calls you his brother and his sister if you're in Christ. That's not for everybody. Jesus doesn't look down to earth and say, all the earth is my brothers and sisters, because all the earth are children of God. Everybody is not a child of God. Do you understand that? That's really important. Because we live in a day, I saw it on television again this week, not, not on a, a preacher broadcast. I just couldn't take any of those this week to look at. I sometimes do. But this was on a news channel. And someone was quoting and said, well, we have to remember everybody are children of God. Everybody on the earth are children of God. That's not true, folks. 
there's a general sense in which I guess you could make that argument because we are all created by him. We are all his creatures. We have been created by him, every single one, and everyone bears, as we said last week, the imagio deo, the, the, the imprint of God, the image of God in a sense. But he's not their father unless we are a brother to Jesus Christ. Unless he's our elder brother, God is not our father. That's why he looked at the, at the Jews that he dealt with, Jesus did, in his own ministry. And they said, we are children of Abraham and children of God. And he said, you're not children of God, you're, you're sons of the devil. And they were taken back. I mean, they had this look. What, what do you mean? We're sons of, we're sons of Abraham. No, you're not. You rejected the very thing that makes you a son of Abraham. You rejected the very revelation of God in, the, in his son, in the flesh. All are not children. All do not have God as their father. But the one who sanctifies, that is Jesus Christ, and those who are sanctified, that is those whose lives have been changed and they are being sanctified, uh, are, are the ones who have God as their father. What in the world does that mean? means this. If a person knows Jesus Christ as elder brother and as pioneer, author of their salvation, if a person really knows Jesus Christ, then Jesus Christ himself has done a work in their life. He has sanctified them. Now, sanctified is a big word that literally just means made them holy. He has set them apart. He has done a work of holiness building in their life. That is, we sing that, the choir sings that anthem, my favorite anthem of all anthems ever sung, clothed in the righteousness of Christ alone. That's what it means to be sanctified by Christ. He clothes us in his righteousness. He gives us his righteousness. That song we sang, Jesus Messiah, starts out, you know, uh, quoting from Paul's letter to the Corinthians where he says, uh, you know, he, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the very righteousness of God. That's, sanct that's being sanctified. And that is a work of Jesus Christ in every single believer. Now, it is not perfected in a heartbeat. Our justification is we are justified before God in a moment. It's a declaration. Sanctification is a process. It is a growth. It is something that's taking place. But here's the key, folks. If you are in Christ, it is taking place. Now let that sink in a minute. If you are in Christ, Paul says, oh, excuse me, this is not Paul. I don't think this is the writer of Hebrews. you got King James. It says Paul's letter. We know all that, but I think it's... I'm going to tell you who I think it is. Because I don't know. But God does. And God put in his word for a reason. The thing the writer is wanting us to see is that the believer has been sanctified by Jesus Christ and they are being sanctified in their life on a daily, continuous basis. That is, they are holy and they are being made holy. They are holy unto God. When God looks at us, he looks at us through who? Jesus. Jesus perfectly. We know in reality we still struggle. 
and we will still struggle until the day we see him face to face in glory, until the day we're given a glorified body. But, but the whole concept of holiness is a concept that we don't understand. I'm convinced, especially as Baptists, but neither the Presbyterians, Episcopals, the Methodists, or any of the others either, so we're in pretty good company, but it's bad company because we need to understand it. Holiness is a part of the Christian life. And without it, there is no Christian life. Holiness is a part of being in Christ. We have been sanctified by Him, and we are the sanctified if we are in Him. There, there are several things Scripture tells us about holiness that we need to understand. It's amazing that the, the two sermons this morning and tonight kind of dovetail together because tonight we're in Galatians chapter 5 talking about the fruit of the, fle- the, the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. And those really fit in. As a matter of fact, if I wasn't preaching that tonight, I'd illustrate it by that this morning. But you've got to come back to see the tie-in. And you ought to come back and see that tie-in. It's important. But what we're saying here is that holiness is a, is a major factor in the Christian life. I'm convinced... Now, you may want to argue with me about this. If you want to, you can. You'll be wrong, but you can argue with me. I'm convinced that the greatest problem in our world today is people who are calling themselves Christians who are unholy and churches who are calling themselves churches and are unholy. I think that's the biggest problem. I think that's why people look at the church and say, what's the difference? They're no different from me. They live like I do. They and they, you know, they get angry just like I get angry. They cuss just like I cuss. They 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 are unfaithful to their spouse just like I'm unfaithful. Their, we're unfaithful to our spouses. There's there's no difference there. They 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 fool around and play around and. And they do things that aren't right. And they look at us and they say, what's the difference? Because the church today is not holy. And Christians don't take holiness seriously. Professing Christians don't take holiness seriously. There's a lot the Scripture says about holiness. I, I, I don't have time to deal with all of it. Let me just give you a couple of things here that are important to remember. First of all, remember that holiness was God's purpose for His people, for all His people, when He planned their salvation. Holiness was God's purpose for all His people when He planned their salvation. Uh, Just one verse that relates to that is Ephesians 1, verse 4, when, when Paul writes, Just as He chose us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Why? That we should be holy and blameless before Him. That's that's God's purpose in calling you to salvation. It's God's purpose in giving you life is that you might be holy and blameless before Him, yes, in all of eternity, but in progression even in this life. Secondly, the Scripture makes clear that holiness was Christ's purpose for all of us when He died. Paul mentions that in Ephesians chapter 5 in the midst of that passage that everybody tries to overlook on husbands and wives and everything, but... But in in verses 25 and 26, Paul says, Husbands, 
Love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ gave himself up for the church. Why? That he might sanctify her, make her holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. The word makes us holy. Jesus prayed in the garden. He said, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. It's the Word of God that sanctifies. It's the Word of God that cleanses. That's why we only preach and study and, and proclaim God's Word because nothing else will do it. Prayer won't do it. Evangelism won't do it. Missions won't do it. All those flow out of a right life with Christ. But the only thing that cleanses, the only thing that sanctifies is the Word of God. And that's why you need to place yourself under the proclamation and the study of the Word of God every opportunity you get. It ought to be a consistent third thing, it was for holiness that we were raised to life in Christ. Next Sunday we'll have a baptism and we'll, we'll tell those folks that are being baptized that, that this is a symbol, this is, this is a picture. You have died to self, you have died to the old man, you have died to the old life, and you have been buried in a watery grave, and now you are raised to newness of life. It's a picture of death, burial, and resurrection. God raised us to life in Christ for holiness. He said in Ephesians 2.10, uh, he said, For we are his workmanship, that is, we are his craft, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Yes, good works are part of the Christian life, but they're part of the Christian life. We don't become a Christian by good works. We live out good works when we are Christian. That's a part of our holiness. It's a part of his work within us change us, to make us what he's called us to be. Not only that, the gospel that summons us, calls us to Christ, also calls us and summons us to holiness. The, the very gospel that calls us to come to Christ for salvation calls us to holiness. Paul wrote this to Timothy in Timothy 2. He said, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Wow. The grace of God appeared. It brought salvation when it touched your life and brought you to Christ. But then the grace of God, the gospel of grace, instructed you. It instructed you to deny all ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly. When? When you get to heaven? No. In this present age. Well, the Puritans talked about our desire for Christ or our desire for the world. And he said, you know, the Scripture invites us to come and taste the goodness of the Lord. Come and taste His goodness and taste his word, taste his truth. Puritan said, but you know what we typically do? We just go around licking the earth. Just licking the earth. Picture being that we'd rather taste the worldliness. We'd rather give in to things that God has called us to, to reject for a short season of pleasure rather than really tasting the goodness of Christ. 
holiness, which is really just another name for salvation and deliverance from sin, is itself a part of the salvation Jesus brings us. In Matthew 1.21, it makes it clear, John the Baptist speaking why Jesus came. He said he will save his people from their sins. Ever thought about that? That's why he came. Not to save you so you could just go on and enjoy him. And so, well, when I die, I'm okay because I've been saved, quote-unquote, whatever that means in our vernacular today, which may not mean the same thing it means biblically. But he came to save his people from the sin, from our sins. Sixthly, holiness is a requirement for heaven and eternal life. Later on in the same book, and we'll get back to it in, when we get over to chapter 12 in about five years, um, maybe not that long, writer of Hebrews says, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification or the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Doesn't mean you'll get to heaven, but you won't be able to see him. It means you won't be there without holiness, without sanctification, which is the work of the sanctifier, Jesus, in the life of a believer. You won't even see God. Seventh, holiness makes for the joy of fellowship with God, which the unholy will miss. Psalm writer in Psalm 15 says, O Lord, who may abide in your tent and who may dwell on your holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. In other words, a person who has been dealt with by the Lord Jesus Christ and sanctified. missing joy in your walk with Christ? Are you missing joy? Are you saying, man, this Christian life thing is just a real bummer. It's a real burden. It's a real drag. Maybe it's because there's no holiness there which he places in every believer. Finally, holiness is a precondition to usefulness to God. Paul said to young Timothy in 2 Timothy, Therefore, if a man cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. So you see, what, what this writer is saying here about Jesus is that he's our pioneer, he's our elder brother, he's greater than the angels. He's the Son of God. He reigns on high and all that great stuff. But all that great stuff is so that we will see that He has an, an unbelievable impact on our life. For any. He is the sanctifier. We are the sanctified. He is the one who cleanses. We are the cleansed. He is the one who redeems. We are the redeemed. He is the one who saves, and we are the saved if we are in Christ. And if we are there, we all come from one origin. We all come from one Father. We all are part of the same family, and He is not ashamed to call them brethren, those who are in Him. I think the question that really flows out of this is this. In our 
earth-bound, earth-focused lives? Are we ashamed? Are we ashamed of Him? Are we ashamed of the work that He has done in us? It says He's not ashamed to call those who are in Him brethren. And I don't mean by that just are we, are we ashamed to say we go to church? Are we ashamed to say we do this? No, that's not it. Are we ashamed to be classified as different? Sanctified. Made holy. Are we ashamed to say that God has done a work in me that is so unbelievable, so magnificent, so life-changing, I stand on His truth. I stand on His Word. I stand on what He has done in me and is doing in me every single day. He's our pioneer. He's our elder brother. He is the rightful Son of God who has brought us if we are in Him to him. Now you may be sitting there and saying, well, you know, I, I got some stuff in my life that, boy, is just really not pleasing to God. My question to you is, is Christ convicting you of it? Is the Holy Spirit working in you to say, that is sin, that is wrong, and are you struggling against him? Are you quenching that? Are you trying to say, I don't want to hear that? Or are you responding with holiness? Oh, Lord, I need to be cleansed of that. I need to be washed of that. Lord, I, I agree with you. I, I confess that to you. That is disobedience. Lord, I can't get rid of it. I'm not strong enough to get rid of it. I can't break it. Father, by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the power of your Holy Spirit, you can. And I ask you, sanctify me even further. Cleanse me even more. Take away my very desire that which I know is displeasing to you. Because I'm your child. And I want to live a life that reflects your person, your character, your fruit. Talk about tonight. More than anything else. Is that your prayer? Is that your desire? Let's pray together. Father, we know that it is by your Holy Spirit that we see our own sin. It's by your work that we are drawn to obedience, even when we don't want to obey. Father, we know that it is by your 
glorious work that we can be the righteousness of God and have our sins taken away and your righteousness given to us. Lord, we know that's all of you. But you've also told us to pursue it, to desire it, to want it. Father, plant that desire within our hearts and lives. Father, it's by your wounds that we have been redeemed if we are in Christ. your work in our lives. Both lives that are believers. Father, perhaps in lives here that do not know. Open their eyes, open their hearts. This is our prayer in Jesus' name.